Proverbs Proverbs chapter 12. Also, just as a reminder, next Sunday we will start taking the Lord's Supper again. So that'll be next Sunday, just for your information. Proverbs chapter 12. We'll read the chapter, and we've been taking these, um, we do about a half at a time. So we'll do the first 14 verses today, and then the rest of it next week. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. A man will not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will not be moved. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man will be praised according to his insight, but one of perverse mind will be despised. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. But even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. But he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. The wicked man desires the booty of evil men. But the root of the righteous yields fruit. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. But the righteous will escape from trouble. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words. And the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. But counselors of peace have joy. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. The righteous is a guide to his neighbor. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. In the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway there is no death. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we do pray that today, Lord, we would be those who love discipline. Lord, that to love discipline from you is to love knowledge. Lord, it is to love our own soul. Lord, it is to love our wives and our children. Lord, to love our friends and our family. Lord, to be able to open our mouth and to, Lord, give to people gracious, truthful words of life. So, Father, we pray that you would establish us, Lord, in the pathway of wisdom. Lord, that we would not hate knowledge, but that we would hate lies and deceit and everything that is contrary to your word. Lord, teach us today. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, again, if you look at your 
headings usually, which the headings themselves are not inspired, uh, but are put there by the translators uh, and editors of these uh, translations that we have. But you'll notice that in many of these chapters, it's just uh, states repetitively the contrast of the upright and the wicked, or the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, and that is what these middle chapters in the book of Proverbs are doing. Having commended to us the way of wisdom, which it continues to do this throughout the middle of these chapters as well, here it is again laying out for us this contrast between the upright and the wicked, between the righteous and the wicked, between the child of God and the child of the devil, so that we might walk in the path of righteousness and avoid and hate everything that is stained by the flesh, that is evil, that is sinful before God. We have no excuse for not knowing what God thinks about good and what God thinks about evil. We have no excuse for not knowing the outcome of the righteous and the outcome of the wicked. So if we are unfamiliar with these truths, and if we do not apply them to our own benefit, the fault lies with us alone, right? It's not God's fault. It's not anyone else's fault. It's right here in the Bible, and we need to heed, just as we mentioned this morning, it's not enough to hear the word, to learn it, to study it. We must be diligent to apply it, right, to practice those things that are taught in the Scriptures. And this is laying out for us these two pathways so that we might avoid the evil and walk and pursue that which is good. So let's begin in verse 1. We'll do the first 14 verses today. It says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Right? To love discipline is to love knowledge. And what greater thing can we have than possess than to have the knowledge of God, the knowledge that leads to salvation. It is through the sacred writings that we become wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And we need the discipline of God to teach us the knowledge of God, to teach us and to acquaint us with the ways of God. So those who love discipline love knowledge. They love and they gain insight into a life that is pleasing to God, into a life that conforms itself to the will of God. And this is, we know, to be true in our childhood, in our rearing, right? If we despise the discipline of our parents, then we are going to be wayward children. We're not going to grow up into responsible people who know authority, who obey, who give proper respect and honor to those that are placed above us. And we learn to honor our parents through discipline. We gain that knowledge of what it means to submit to their authority through their discipline. And they discipline us as it seems best and most fitting in their own eyes for our good and for our benefit. Well, God, our Father, does the same thing for His children. He disciplines us as His sons so that we might gain knowledge. But if we despise the discipline of God, then we will despise knowledge. Right? We need to gain this knowledge that is going to come through the discipline. So we must receive and love the discipline of God, even when that discipline is difficult. And many times it is, right? It's not pleasant, but it is painful for a moment, yet it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Hebrews chapter 5, we see here that even our Lord Jesus Christ, who was the beloved of the Father, was not himself exempt from God's discipline. But rather, he was disciplined 
so that he might gain knowledge through what he suffered. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Though he was the son of God, he learned obedience through his sufferings. God giving to him more and more tests, greater and greater tests, by which he proved his obedience to God over the course of his life. And he is the beloved son of the father. Well, if God does that to his only begotten son, then is he also not going to do that to his adopted sons, to his adopted children? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 4 to 12, teaches us to not despise the discipline of God. And here, the discipline is sufferings, sufferings. Hebrews 12, 4 says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So there, don't uh, despise or reject, regard lightly, the discipline of the Lord. And in this case, they've not resisted to the point of shedding their blood. The sufferings that they are facing up to this point have not reached such a level that they are being put to death or that they are being physically tortured because of their faith in Christ. We know up to this point, they have at least had their property plundered because of their faith in Christ, but they have not had to shed their blood yet. Yet here he calls their sufferings a striving against sin, right? The striving against sin because God designs the sufferings in order to cause us to overcome sin, to sanctify us. Though from our enemies, from their persecutors, they don't care about them becoming holy. They just want to torment them and to make their lives miserable. But God does these things, brings these upon us for our good in order to cause us to overcome sin. And he disciplines everyone who is his son. And we do this even as earthly fathers with our own children. We do it as seems best to us, and our children learn to respect us through discipline, right? They learn, and those who are trained by it, when they reach adulthood, they don't look back and despise the discipline that their parents put upon them, but many times they conclude, like in my own case, I probably deserve more spankings, right, and more severe because of my many misbehaviors, and I'm not disdaining what my parents did, I'm grateful for what they did because I know that without that discipline, I could have been a very deviant person, 
right? I could have lived a very wayward life, and it preserved and kept me from many evil things because of the fear of my father and the fear of facing his discipline, his discipline. Well, if we do that with our earthly fathers and we learn to respect them, and they do it as seems best to them, and they do it in many ways, and it is beneficial for us, how much more should we respect God, our Father, who knows how to discipline us perfectly? Never unjustly, never over the top, never too lightly. He perfectly knows what we need and how to discipline us for our own good. Well, if we hate that discipline, then we are going to hate knowledge. We're not going to grow. We're not going to come to greater knowledge and understanding in the practical application of our salvation, in the way it manifests itself day in and day out. Well, don't we want to have greater knowledge of salvation, greater knowledge of sin, greater knowledge and experiences of holiness and righteousness? Well, we only gain that through discipline. So if we love discipline, we will gain knowledge and we will love that knowledge that we gain through discipline. But he who hates reproof, he says, is stupid. He who hates reproof. He hates discipline. He hates it from God. He hates it from God's word. He hates it from God's people. He even hates it from the civil magistrates who reprove wicked men because of their sins. Wherever there is sin and wherever there is a restraint being put upon it, either by the word of God or by the messenger of God or by the the, uh, one who is in authority, the one who hates this reproof because he wants to give free reign to his sin is a very foolish and a stupid person because it's ultimately going to lead to his demise, his ruin, and his destruction. Psalm 50, verses 16 to 23. Psalm 50, verse 16. says, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's sons. These things you have done, and I kept silent. Uh, You thought that I was one just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall, show, I shall show the salvation of God. There, the wicked are described as those who hate discipline and who cast the word of God behind them. Well, isn't that the same as here in Proverbs 12.1? They hate reproof. They cast the word of God behind them. They don't want God's word reproving their sin. And this will not lead to knowledge and wisdom an experiential understanding of righteousness and holiness, but rather will lead to stupidity, to foolishness, right? To more sin, and ultimately it will end in destruction. Verse 2, a good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. A good man obtains favor from the Lord. He has the favor of God. Now, we have to define who is a good man. Right? Because we know our Lord Jesus Christ, when the rich young ruler came to him and called him good teacher, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Well, how can a man become a good man? Only through salvation, right? Only through regeneration, only through a change of heart and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But when God makes a person a good man, 
by salvation, by the miracle of God, the result is a good life. The good man, out of his good treasure, brings forth what is good. Right? That's what he means here. The good man obtains favor from the Lord. Not that his good works are the basis of his obtaining the favor of the Lord, but rather his good works are a confirmation that God has given to him his favor. And he continues to have God's favor because his good works manifest that he is truly a good tree. He's a good tree. He's a good person who has a good heart by the miracle of God. And it results in a good life. But the one who devises evil is going to be condemned by God. The wicked man who devises evil is proving himself that he is an evil man with an evil heart. Therefore, he produces evil in his life. And the result of evil is condemnation. He will be condemned. He will render to each one according to what he has done. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and tribulation. This is what will happen according to Romans chapter 2. Also, Psalm 36 Psalm 36, verses 1 to 4. Psalm 36, 1 says, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil right the man who does not despise evil will himself be despised by God right and here he is described as planning wickedness on his bed he's devising evil schemes in his mind in his head while he's laying in his bed and then as soon as he rises he sets his feet to do what to enact the wicked plans that he's devised in his own heart and in his own mind. Well, one who does this will be condemned by God because he's proven himself to be a wicked man and he will not have peace with the Lord. Verse 3, a man will not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will not be moved. Here, the wicked, they will not be established through their sin. Now, this is what many people believe. They believe that through sin, they're not depending on God, they're not trusting in Him, they're not seeking to be reconciled to Him, they're not conforming their life to the will of God and the will of Christ. But rather, they're doing whatever's right in their own eyes. They're living according to their own power, their own might, their own strength, and whatever their hands set out to do, for a moment, many times, they're successful in these things. And they think, they believe, that they have established themselves and that they will never be shaken or moved. But what ultimately happens to those who seek to establish themselves by wickedness, by avarice, by greed, by jealousy, by evil, by their own human strength, you know, whoever it is, these very rich and wealthy people in the world who think that they rule and master everything, they have established themselves according to wicked means, according to their own pride, right? They use their power to subjugate others, to oppress other people. And they feel like that they will continue this way forever and ever. But they will not be established by these wicked means. 
Only the righteous will be established by God. The root of the righteous will not be moved. The wicked will be destroyed, but the righteous will not be shaken. And this will be manifest or revealed ultimately on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, when Jesus Christ is revealed, it will be proven whose house is built upon the rock and whose house is built upon the sand. Because the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. There will be a distinction made between the righteous and between the wicked. So though in this life it may appear that the wicked are going to win the day, that the wicked are established and the righteous have instability, right? That they are tossed here and there to and fro by these kinds of people. On the day of judgment it will be revealed that the righteous will not be moved and it is the wicked who will be destroyed. They will be destroyed and there will be nothing left. Psalm 37 teaches this. And this concept is taught cover to cover. From Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, that the righteous will have stability and the wicked will be destroyed. We have to believe this and we have to receive it by faith in the word of God, right? In the word of God, not by what we see with our eyes. Because what we see with our eyes often does not conform to the reality of scripture. But we must live by faith and not by sight. Do not be envious of the wicked. Even when they have power, they have pleasure, they live in their mansions, they have the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Many times we are tempted to be envious of them, according to Psalm 73. But what do we have to perceive about those wicked people? We have to see what's going to happen to them on the day of judgment. That God puts them on slippery places, and they soon they fall, and then they are no more. And if we become like them, the same thing will happen to us. Psalm 37, verses 35 to 40. He says, I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. This is during their life, during their power, during their honor, during their prestige, their fame and fortune. They spread themselves out. It looks like they're going to consume the whole world. But then verse 36, then he passed away and lo, he was no more. I sought for him but he could not be found. Even the most powerful of the rich and famous, what eventually happens to all of them? All of them die. Every single one of them. They do not escape death. And then we look for them, and they're gone. They're, they're no more. You cannot find them any longer. So then, what is the application? 37, mark the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Right? There is no posterity, no future for the wicked. But there is a future for the man of peace. And why does he have a future? Because God is his strength. God saves him. God preserves him. God protects him. God safely brings him into his heavenly kingdom. That's why he has a future. 
So if we want to have a future, whose example do we need to follow? Well, first and foremost, the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then the example of the righteous, like Hebrews chapter 11, that are set before us in the Holy Scriptures. Follow their pathway, their example. They suffered, they endured, so we have to suffer and endure, and then we will enter into our heavenly rest. But don't be envious of the wicked, even though they seek to establish themselves by wicked ways. Verse 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. The greatest possession a man can obtain in this life that will bring to him happiness and blessedness in this present world is to have an excellent wife. To have an excellent wife She brings glory and honor. She is a crown on the head of her husband. She brings him glory and honor. Now we have to ask, how do we define an excellent wife? Well, we have to define the excellent wife according to Scripture, according to the Word of God, not according to what the world says. But what does the Word of God teach us about the excellent wife? Well, it says such in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31.10 gives us here at the very end of this book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom describing the righteous woman so that we would have no excuse for not knowing what to look for in a wife and in a wife for our sons and what we should want our girls to be and how we should want them to grow up. It's right here in the Word of God, and this is what it describes. An excellent wife, who can find? For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand grasps the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. She stretches out her hand to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. That woman there is a crown on the head of her husband. Excellent, an excellent wife. And this is what we should aspire in our own church and in our own families, that to have excellent wives and daughters who will grow up to be excellent wives one day and sons who will marry excellent wives one day so that they are blessed instead of the alternative, 
which is, what's the opposite of an excellent wife? A rotten wife? A bad wife? Right? This is what he describes. She who shames him is like rottenness in bones. Right? The excellent wife honors him and is a source of honor to her husband through her chaste and virtuous conduct. She doesn't bring shame to him, but a worthless woman, a worthless wife, a sinful and wicked wife, she brings shame to her husband because of her evil, because she's constantly going about doing mischief, causing problems, stirring up controversy, right? Doing these types of things in the home, uh, bickering, fighting, nagging, these kinds of things. And it leads to rottenness in the bones. It leads to misery in his own soul, in the home, in society, in the children, all over the place if this happens. So we should aspire then the good and not the evil. Verse 5, the thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The thoughts of the righteous are just. Now again, naturally, by nature, we do not have just thoughts. By nature, we have evil thoughts, but it is by redemption that our thoughts are just. And our thoughts become just as we fill our mind with the Word of God. Because the Word of God is just. It is righteous. It is altogether true. So when we fill our mind with the Word of God, then we obtain the mind of God on all things. We obtain the very mind of Christ. So that when we're looking at what's happening in the world, we're not judging it according to our own flesh or our own sinful impulses. Now we're judging it according to the mind of Christ and we're able to discern what is his will and come to a just understanding. This is how the mind or the thoughts of the righteous are just because they are receiving the word of God. They're not depending upon their own understanding, but rather they are depending upon the very word of God and God's word gives them understanding. And then the contrast the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Their counsel is deceitful because their thoughts are deceitful. Their thoughts, their mind is filled with lies, with vanity, with things that are not true. They are like their father who is the devil, who is a liar from the beginning. So their mind is filled with lies, and then when they speak, lies come out of their mouth. So when they are giving counsel, when they are advising people, they're not advising them according to the wisdom of God, found in the word of God, but according to their own carnal, natural, earthly, wicked, demonic, sinful wisdom, and it leads to deceit, and it ultimately will end in destruction. It's not beneficial to anyone when we give them counsel, and it's not coming from the word of God, but it's coming from our own opinions. That's deceptive, and we should not deceive others. Verse 6, the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The wicked use their words to kill the innocent. They use their words and they lie in wait for innocent blood. Psalm 10, Psalm 10 verses 1 to 11 Psalm 10, verse 1 says, Why do you stand afar, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. 
and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all of his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in hiding places as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. This is what the wicked do. They hide in their lurking places, looking to kill the innocent. And what is their means or tool that they use to slay the innocent? It's their words, their words, their lies, their deceit. Isn't this what the, the adversaries of our Lord Jesus Christ did to him? They slew him with their words, with their lies, with their false witness that they bore against him, and then used that as the basis to shed his innocent blood. This is what the wicked do. They use their mouth to bring about injustice, ruin, misery, even shedding the blood of the innocent. But in contrast, the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The mouth of the upright, they don't use their mouth to slay innocent people. They use their mouth to deliver people. And they themselves will be delivered by their own lips. By their own lips. And this is because with their mouth, they're offering prayers to God. They're crying out to God to deliver them from their, in, from their enemies. Also, they're able to use their mouth to give a just defense against the false accusations that come against them from these naysayers and critics. So they are able to defend themselves if necessary in these ways. And through their mouth come the true doctrines of God by which they are graciously instructing people and they are able to discern between good and evil, between truth and error, so as not to fall by the cunning of deceitful men. So their mouth is a source of delivery because their mouth is filled, instead of with lies and curses and bitterness, it is filled with the truth, with blessing, with what is good and right and pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 7, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. The wicked will be overthrown, and when they are, they will cease to be. We just read that from Psalm 37. The wicked, ruthless man spreading himself out like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. But then he says, I looked and behold, he was no more. He was gone. He disappeared from the face of the earth. And where is that wicked man now? Is he not there with uh, the rich man in a place of torment in hell for all eternity? He will be no more. Isn't this what happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? They were wicked people. They did many evil things against God. And they were destroyed. And those cities lie in ruin to this very day. They were utterly destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. What about the house of Ahab, that wicked king of Israel? What happened to Ahab and his household? Were they not destroyed by the Lord? And their house, his house, his dynasty came to a halt. It ceased to be. They were destroyed and wiped away. 
And what will become of Babylon the Great one day? Will that great prostitute not be destroyed by God, representing and being an emblem of this present world? So the wicked, they're going to be destroyed. And when they are, they will be overthrown by God, and they will be no more. It says in 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away along with its lust, but the one who does the will of God will abide forever. The world is passing away. The world will be overthrown along with all of its desires, and it is only those who do the will of God who will endure forever. And that's why he says, the house of the righteous will stand. The righteous man, he will endure for all generations, and his house will stand as well. God will bless him. God will preserve him. God will protect him. It says in Matthew 16, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, ultimately, the house of the righteous is the household of faith. The believers, those who have been gathered into the kingdom of God. And it says in Matthew 16, verse 18, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. God will build his church, and hell will not overpower the church of Jesus Christ. The house of the righteous will stand, even against all of the assaults, the anger, the vitriol, the hatred of Satan, his demons, the wicked world, no matter what they do against the church of Jesus Christ, the house of the righteous will stand. And they will all fall. They will fall because we are upheld by whom? By the mighty power of God. And whenever they attack us, they are attacking God. And God will not let his children falter, but they will be preserved for all time. Verse 8. A man will be praised according to his insight, but one who is perverse, but one of perverse mind will be despised. A man who has true insight, true wisdom, he will be praised according to his insight. Whenever he is able to rightly discern between good and evil, to rightly instruct, to rightly teach, to rightly counsel those who are in need of counsel, he will be praised. He will be thanked. People will be very grateful and gracious because of the insight he possesses and what he is able to do in helping others. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that all men will praise him because there are those who despise wisdom. They hate the word of God and they don't want to hear the word of God. But he means it among the righteous. They will praise him and they will be grateful for the insight that he has and that he gives. An example of this would be 1 Kings chapter 10. When the queen of the south came to see Solomon and to hear his wisdom, it says in 1 Kings 10, verses 1 to 10, that she praised him because of his insight, because of the wisdom granted to him by God. 1 Kings 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue, with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, 
the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers in the stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. So there, for his insight, for his wisdom, she is praising him, but ultimately she's praising God because God is the one who is the source of all of this. And this is how it should be. Though it is right to commend a righteous man and to be grateful and praise a man because of the insight, ultimately it should lead us to praise God, right? When we recognize the goodness of God in a man, it's fine for us to recognize it in the man so long as it doesn't stay in the man, so long as it leads us to be grateful to God. And this is what she did here. Now, by way of side note, according to what we talked about this morning, if she had no spirit in her, because of the wisdom of Solomon, then how much more should it be with us, with our Lord Jesus Christ? Because as great as the wisdom of Solomon, someone greater than Solomon has come, who has more wisdom than him, who has more glory, who has more honor than Solomon. We should have a higher view of Christ than she had of Solomon. And we should want to honor him above all things. And isn't it true of us? How blessed are the servants of Christ? How blessed are we to learn from him to be in his presence? And what will, it, what will it be like if they were blessed on earth to be under the rule of Solomon? How much more will it be for us one day to be in heaven under the rule of Christ, to be in his presence and to see and to hear his wisdom for all eternity? So what awaits us is a great future. And this is why, again, we have to persevere. We have to persevere in the things of God and not grow weary in doing good. So, the uh, man is praised according to his insight, but the perverse mind will be despised. Right? God despises him, and the righteous will despise him as well. When he spews and utters his nonsense and his perversities, they don't want anything to do with that. Verse 9. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. Here, the one who is lightly esteemed, this is the one who, he leads a meager existence. He's not uh, putting on an outward show so that people think he is of a higher position than what he actually is. And there are people who do this, who should be living down here but they want to give the impression that they're living up here. Usually they do it by debt, right? Because we live in a debtor society and everyone goes out and borrows money to buy things that they don't have, so everyone thinks that they're very wealthy. But really, the bank is very wealthy, and they're loaning all the money to them, and all they're doing is paying interest. 
right? So there are people who want others to think more highly of them than what they should, that give the impression that they're more successful, that they're better off than what they truly are. But the one who is lightly esteemed, who people think, well, he's just a poor man, but he has a servant. He lives within his means, and because he's not concerned with what other people think about him, he doesn't care if he wears uh, worn-out clothing. He doesn't care if he has to drive a used car. He would rather have a servant who is there to help him in the house, who is there to benefit him and work for him and do these kinds of things, right? To have that type of help and live a meager life than to put on this show of being very wealthy and yet not have a servant and also here not even have any bread. Is it good to have nice clothing but not to be able to eat? Wouldn't it be better to have more meager clothing and have bread and have a servant than to wear fine clothing and jewelry and gold and all these types of things and yet to spend all of your money to put on this outward show but then you don't even have enough left over to buy bread for yourself and for your family. So the point of this is we need to live within our means. We need to live within the means given to us by God and if we have food and clothing with this we will be content. We should be content to live a simple, quiet life. And if people think, oh, well, he's not very wealthy, who cares, right? Who cares what they think? I would rather them think that we're poor and live a happy life than have to live in debt and live beyond our means in order to impress other people. We shouldn't live in that way. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 7 says, There is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. And another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. And there are real-life examples of this. Certainly, there are many examples of people who pretend to be rich, but who actually have nothing. Because they, everything they own is actually owned by the bank, and it's all from debt. But there are a few examples that you'll hear of, of people who are actually very wealthy, but you would never know it by the way they dress, by what they drive, by the house that they live in, you would think, oh, well, they're just a, a, you know, a normal person. But actually, they have great wealth because they're not trying to put on a show for others. And that's the way that we should be. Verse 10. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. A righteous man is so thoughtful, so compassionate, that even his animals, he has regard for their life. He takes care of them. He feeds them. He gives them water and the care and the things that they need. Now, sometimes if the dog likes to dig out, you've got to discipline him, right? You've got to teach him a lesson for being such a nuisance to you all the time, right? So my children are laughing at me because some of our animals, I just want to strangle those things because of the way they behave sometimes. However, the righteous man, he should care for his animals. He should feed them, provide for them, be thoughtful to them. Right? If they need water, then he should take water to them in the morning and not be lazy and wait all day because how are they going to get water for themselves? Right? Someone has to do it for them. They need to be fed. Whatever is necessary for them, this is what needs to happen. And God shows compassion even upon animals, even upon the animals. We remember in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, Whenever God is reproving Jonah, he says to him, should I not have compassion on the city of Nineveh, 
right, that has all of these people in it and also many what? He says many animals as well. Many animals, right? You're upset, Jonah, because I'm not going to destroy the city. Well, there's many people there who don't know their right hand from their left, and there's also many animals there, and all of them are going to be destroyed, but because of their repentance, I relented of that destruction that I was going to do. Well, God showed compassion on both the people and also on the animals. And so we should show compassion on our animals as well. Now, we shouldn't treat our animals like people. He's not saying that. He's not saying like people do today who go insane and out of their mind and they treat their animals as better than people. We, we shouldn't be like that. We need to be, uh, have a sober mind in the way that we do it. But certainly, there's nothing wrong with having animals and there's nothing wrong with treating them in a proper and a good way. And we ought to take care of them and uh, use them in the proper way that God determines. But then the wicked... Even the compassion of the wicked, he says, is cruel. The wicked man, even when he shows compassion, it is laced with cruelty, laced with cruelty, because he's a wicked man. And even if he does do some mitigated good for someone, it's ultimately going to lead to cruelty because he's not concerned for their soul, for their immortal soul. He's not teaching and instructing them in the ways of God. So even if, say, a Mormon goes and works in an orphanage and is taking care of children who don't have fathers or mothers, well, we might say that's very compassionate. And in one regard, it is compassionate to their body. But if that Mormon is teaching them Mormon doctrine, is it compassionate to their soul? No. And in the end, it's actually cruelty because while he's providing for the body, he's destroying the soul and also destroying the body one day in the lake of fire by teaching them their poisonous, noxious doctrines. So even their compassion results in cruelty and destruction in this way. Verse 11. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Here, hard work. Hard work. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. Who is working, who is diligent, who is tilling the land when it's necessary, who is planting whenever it's necessary, who is going out and weeding the field so that it's not overrun with weeds and grass and things. He's doing that when it's necessary. Whenever the harvest comes, he goes out and he harvests it whenever it's time to do so. He's diligent to work and to do what God has called him to do. And if he does this, he's not going to lack bread. He's always going to be provided, now again, according to the will and blessing of God. God can send a famine to where even if a person is a diligent hard worker, there is scarcity. But according to the way things are generally, commonly, in our day-to-day experiences in life, those who work hard will have plenty of means to provide for all of the necessities that they need in life. But the one who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Someone who pursues what is worthless, things that are useless, such as sin. Sin is worthless. They pursue it. He lacks sense. Or also, in terms of the contrast of being a hard worker, get-rich schemes, right? Because there are many people who want to get wealthy, but not 
through diligent work and labor, but through some scam, through some scheme that they concoct. And it's a worthless scheme that they chase after, and they don't become rich like they want. Instead, it leads to scarcity. Because instead of working hard, they're over there giving themselves to these kinds of worthless endeavors, and it never ends and results in anything good. So if that person is like that, they lack any sense, and it will not be good for them. Verse 12 says, The wicked man desires the booty of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. The wicked man desires the booty of evil men, meaning the proceeds or the treasure of wicked, evil men. This is what he desires. He seeks to gain fortune through sinful means. This is what wicked people do. Money at all costs, no matter what. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with gaining wealth, with pursuing uh, money in the proper way, so long as we're doing it legitimately, so long as we're doing it in righteous ways that have been established by God. That's what he just talked about in the preceding verses. Diligent work, right? Diligent work is going to lead to an increase in your wealth. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when we desire wealth in sinful ways, then it proves that we're a wicked man. And we shouldn't be that way. Then the contrast, the root of the righteous yields fruit. If the root is holy, so are the branches, according to Romans chapter 11, verse 6. If the root is righteous, then what kind of fruit will be yielded by that righteous root? Righteous fruit, right? Righteous fruit. And this is what we should desire to do. We should desire to live a godly and a righteous life. And if our root is Christ himself, then the fruit that proceeds from us will be the fruit of righteousness. That's the way that we should live. Verse 13, an evil man is ensnared by the transgressions of his lips, but the righteous will escape from trouble. The evil man is ensnared by his lips, by the sin of his lips. He is trapped, he is caught, he is brought under condemnation and judgment because of his words. He cannot control his mouth. He can't put a muzzle on his mouth and on his tongue. And as a result, he is ensnared or entrapped by his lips, by his own lips. But not the righteous man. He will escape from trouble. Even when men set traps for him, he is able to escape them through his righteous lips, through his righteous mouth, the words that come out of him. He's able to give a just defense so that he puts to silence these people who are doing these kinds of of things. And ultimately, his righteous lips will be used on the day of judgment to prove uh, by God the righteousness of this man. Matthew chapter 12, 33 to 37. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. 
For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Your words will either justify you or they will condemn you. Again, of course, not that our words are the basis of our justification. We know that the person and work of Christ, but our words are the manifestation that we have been justified through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And our words will be brought forward on the day of judgment to prove whether we are a good tree or a bad tree, a sheep or a goat, a child of God or the child of the devil. And in this way, the lips of the wicked, they will entrap them. Their transgressions of their mouth will entrap them on the day of judgment, but the righteous will be set free. They will be set free on the day of judgment because their lips were filled with grace and truth and goodness and righteousness. Then verse 14, a man will be satisfied with the good by the fruit of his words and the deeds of a man's hand will return to him. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words. Right? Again, this is speaking of the good man that we just read of in Matthew chapter 12. The good man who has a good heart and brings forth what is good. Well, when he brings forth good words, he will be satisfied. He will be satisfied because the words of his mouth are not deceitful, they're not evil, they're not contrary to the word of God, but they are a benefit for himself, for his wife, for his children, for his neighbor, for his fellow brothers in Christ, for those in the world, whoever he meets, right? These things satisfy, they're good, they're beneficial, to those who hear them. But not only are his words good, his deeds are also good. The deeds of a man's hand will return to him. The good man who has good words and good deeds, these deeds will return to him. He will be rewarded for these things on the day of judgment. Because God will give to each man according to what he has done. Or it says in Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Those who sow good will reap what is good. Those who sow righteousness will reap a harvest of righteousness. But those who sow evil, they will reap the whirlwind and the storm. 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7. It says in 1 Timothy 4, 6, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. There, if he is preaching the word of God, the true words of God, using his lips in the proper way, then he'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, who himself will be nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. He's going to be nourished on these, but who else will be nourished? The rest of the church. Everyone is going to benefit from these things when he's speaking the truth but if he begins to delve into worldly fables then that's not going to be benefit beneficial to anyone it's not going to help anyone it's not going to nourish anyone's soul 
but it will return and lead only to ruin and destruction. So we should then commit our ways to doing what is good and pleasing in the sight of God. Right? The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. What do our lips and what does our life testify about us? Does it prove that we have a good heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit? Or does it prove that we have a heart that is dead in our trespasses and sins? This is what the book of Proverbs is teaching us. To look at our fruit, to look at our life, to look at our words, and to determine, am I upright? Am I a righteous man? Or am I a wicked man? Right? Because our life will conform to either one or the other. So may it be that we examine ourselves and find that we truly are in the faith and that we are good and that we continue to pursue what is good. And if we are producing good fruit, then that's good, but we should want to produce more good fruit, more and more good fruit unto God. So let us then commit ourselves to that this week and commend ourselves to God, to his grace and mercy to watch over us and to work within us that which is pleasing in his sight. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking, Lord, for you to, Lord, discern and to teach us, Lord, concerning our own heart. Lord, who can discern the heart of a man? Lord, only you, Lord, know us perfectly. Lord, only you know us to the very core of who we are. And Lord, we pray that you would reveal and that you would teach us, Lord, concerning ourselves. Lord, that we would judge ourselves truly so that we would not come under judgment. Lord, we want to be good trees. Lord, we want to be those who have a good heart. But Lord, we know that if this is true of us, then Lord, it will manifest itself in very real and visible, distinct ways in this present life. Lord, we know that so long as we have the flesh, none of us will ever be perfect. Lord, none of us will ever be completely free of sin. But we know as well that if we have the Spirit, Lord, it is impossible that there will not be some measure of good fruit within us. And that the good fruit that you are producing, it will be increasing over the course of our life. So, Father, I pray that you would reveal to us these things. Lord, that you would help us to test ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith. Lord, that we would judge ourselves with true judgment. Lord, not according to lies and deceit, but according to your word. And that, Father, you would make it clear to us that we are your children. And that, Lord, you would give to us assurance and hope, Lord, that we have been reconciled to you and that there is waiting for us, Lord, an inheritance in heaven. So, Lord, be with us this week as we go from here. Lord, cause us and help us to walk in your ways. Lord, we pray that you give us strength, Lord, knowing that apart from you we can do nothing. And that, Lord, you would continue to work within us that which is pleasing and good in your sight. Lord, help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, knowing that it is you who is at work within us and that you who have began this good work, that you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Lord, give us safety as we travel home today. Lord, bless us this week. Lord, help us to do those things that are pleasing in your sight. And Lord, bring us back together again. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.